welcome to the Seeking Pearls podcast. My name is Rebecca Meitinger. It is wonderful to be here with you this evening. We are in the middle of a series on the Apostle Paul, studying Paul, his letters, his journeys, his Jesus. And it is uh, just a joy to be here with you in this fifth episode of this series. Tonight we're looking at Paul's first missionary journey. So, so far in this series, we have looked at Paul B.C., who was Saul of Tarsus before he met Jesus, before Christ. In the second episode, we looked at his conversion on the Damascus Road when Jesus met Saul on the way to Damascus, where he was headed to arrest and persecute Christ followers. And Jesus revealed himself to Saul and let Saul know that he was his chosen instrument to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. In that account, God used a man named Ananias to be brave and courageous and to encourage and send out Saul on his mission. The next episode we looked at the hidden years and in the hidden years we learned about how Saul went away to Arabia for probably three years of just studying with Jesus and he tells us in the letter to the Galatians that he did not receive his theology or his gospel by any human beings, but he received it by direct revelation from Jesus. And it seems very likely that that happened when he went away into Arabia to learn and to get to know Jesus. And then he also went to his home in Tarsus uh, for probably about 10 years. In the fourth episode, we looked very closely at a wonderful man named Barnabas that the Lord used mightily in Paul's life when nobody believed Saul after his conversion, that he had come to Christ when he went to Jerusalem after his three years in Arabia and he went to Jerusalem, the apostles were still scared of him and still not willing to take a risk yet, except Barnabas took the time to get to know Saul, to hear his story, to, to see that he really was a changed man, that Jesus had freed him and revealed himself to him and that he was a new man and that he had been called by God to preach the gospel. And Barnabas learned this about him, took the time to get to know him, and then brought him to Peter's house and vouched for Saul and said, hey, this guy is real. He's legit. His story is real. And uh, and then after that, Peter and the apostles did accept him, and he stayed with Peter and his wife for 15 days. And we talked a little bit about, wouldn't it be amazing if we could <laughs> learn a little bit about what the conversation was for those 15 days. And then we talked about how 10 years later, Barnabas was in Antioch, and he knew that this man, Saul, from 10 years ago, who he had met in Jerusalem, had gone home to Tarsus because his life had been threatened in Jerusalem. And Barnabas knew that this guy was the right guy for the job in Antioch because Antioch, the church in Antioch, was preaching the gospel to the Gentiles in a way that no other church had ever done before. And Barnabas knew that that had been Saul's specific call from God is to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. And when he saw that this was happening in Antioch, he remembered Saul and he went to Tarsus to look for Saul and to bring him back to Antioch. And they pastored together in Antioch for a year. And after a year of pastoring together in Antioch, the Lord set apart 
Barnabas and Saul, the church in Antioch had been praying and fasting, asking the Lord what the next step was, asking the Lord, what shall we do? Who shall we send? We know that the world needs the gospel. Who should go? And they had fasted and prayed, and the Holy Spirit told them, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. They are the ones who are going to go on this mission. And we learned in Acts chapter 13, verse uh two and three that the the church placed their hands on Barnabas and Saul and then sent them out to do their mission work and that is where we pick up tonight they are being sent off by their church in Antioch they are being commissioned by their church in Antioch which is just a beautiful thing it's not just about Saul and Barnabas it is the whole church that is sending them that is praying for them that daily they would have been holding up Barnabas and Saul in prayer, praying for God's guidance and protection on their mission, and more, most importantly, praying that people would come to salvation in Jesus Christ. They also sent with a young man named John Mark, who is a cousin, we believe, to Barnabas. And John Mark is going to be with for part of the journey, but we will see where he leaves off. And they go on their mission. So, we are going to start tonight in chapter 13 of the book of Acts, starting at verse 4, and we will read about their first mission. So they start in Antioch. The two of them, Paul and Barnabas, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. Okay, where are they? If you Google a map of Paul's first missionary journey. You will find many, many, and they will all be about the same. So it starts in Antioch. Antioch is, uh, it's it's Antioch in Syria. There are many Antiochs in the Roman Empire, actually up to 16 cities called Antioch throughout the Roman Empire at this time. This is Antioch in Syria, and it is on the Orontes River. And it's about 15 miles up the river from the Mediterranean Sea. So they sailed down the river to Seleucia, which is a port city on the sea. And then they sailed from there to Cyprus, which is an island in the Mediterranean Sea. That is where Barnabas is from. So it makes sense to start there. But we learn in Romans chapter 15, verse 20, When Paul is writing to the church in Rome, he says there that it has always been his ambition to preach the gospel in lands that have not yet heard the gospel. Well, we know that Cyprus has already received the gospel. We know there were people from Cyprus in Jerusalem at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came and they heard the gospel and they took it home to Cyprus. In fact, it's people from Cyprus who then went and planted the church in Antioch and Syria. So we know that Cyprus already has the gospel. So we know that this is just a starting point. It's where Barnabas is from. It's where they start. But it certainly is just a starting point. It is not going to be the end of the journey for them because the gospel's already there. So they sailed to Cyprus, an island in the Mediterranean. When they arrived at Salamis, which is a port city, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. Okay, so this would be John Mark. He is almost certainly the same John Mark who wrote the gospel according to Mark in our Bibles. Verse 6, they traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. 
There, they met a Jewish sorcerer and a false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. All right, so this is already really incredible. The proconsul is the governor appointed by the Roman Senate. They appointed governors of different regions. And so he is the governor of the island of Cyprus, appointed by Rome. He is Roman to the core. He is a Gentile. He's not Jewish. And he wants to hear more about the word of God. And so he calls for Barnabas and Saul to come into the governor's palace or the court, wherever he is, that he brings them right in to his setting and asks them to continue preaching the gospel to him, which is phenomenal. He is the highest standing person who is named, who receives the gospel in the New Testament, who we know receives the gospel. So that's just really incredible that this is like their first audience. (laughs) They started in the Jewish synagogue, which is what they always did. That was always their plan to start in the Jewish synagogues and then to move on outside of the Jewish synagogues to the Greeks. And right away, they're preaching in front of the Roman proconsul, the governor of Cyprus. And he has a person who is in his court, an attendant, who is also filled with a demon. And we're going to see that he's a sorcerer. So in verse 8, it says, But Elymas, the sorcerer, this is the same guy as Bar-Jesus, for that is what his name means, sorcerer, he opposed them and he tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, he looked straight at Elymas and he said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately mist and darkness came over him and he groped around seeking someone to lead him by the hand when the proconsul saw what had happened he believed for he was amazed at the teaching about the lord so many cool things here so uh john pollock is a biography a biographer whose book i'm reading i've talked about that probably in every episode and he points out that For Luke, who's writing down the book of Acts, for Luke to know that a mist and darkness came over him, that seems like it would have had to been told, the account of this would have had to been told by Elymas after it happened. So like Elymas is saying, talking about it in first person, like a mist came over me and darkness came over me and I had to grope about as he like is becoming blind with this mist. And so what John Pollock proposes is that is Luke talking to him? And remember, Luke is a physician, so this is very interesting for Luke to be writing this down about somebody becoming blind. Is Luke talking to him about what happened after Elymas has regained his sight and then has possibly come to believe in Jesus after this occurred to him? We don't know, but I like I like thinking about things like that. And another thing that's really interesting is I have a couple of my sources have said that in, in 1912, an archaeologist found letters that would indicate that Sergius Paulus, who is the governor here, 
was writing letters encouraging his daughter to become a Christian, and she did become a Christian. And so we have cool evidence outside of the Bible that Sergius Paulus was indeed a follower of Christ after this, and so was part of his family, which is really neat. All right, so that is what happens in the island of Cyprus, and then they go to a port city in Cyprus, which is Paphos, and they are going to get on a boat and they're going to keep sailing. So they're going to sail north. Uh, So let's start there in chapter 13, verse 13. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Persia and Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. Okay, so at this point, John Mark leaves. He no longer wants to go on this journey. Nobody knows why. We have absolutely no information about it, except that a little bit later, before they leave on their second missionary journey, we know that Barnabas wants to take John Mark with him. And Paul says no, because he abandoned us. And so Paul refuses to take him with on the second journey. So we know whatever reason John Mark left for, We know that it was a very sore situation. It was not one that they agreed on together, and it left some wounds. We also know, though, through different comments in later letters that Paul wrote, that the wounds are mended later on in years to come, and they are co-workers in the faith. And, And Paul writes about John Mark with great admiration and adoration. So we know that the wounds that are caused here get healed, but currently they are wounds and we don't know why. So he returns to Jerusalem. A couple of things that have been suggested is when they get to Persia, which is where they sailed to, Persia and Pamphylia, that is in what is now Turkey, it's modern day Turkey, southern on the Mediterranean Sea in southern Turkey, and it's very mountainous. So as they're going to head north to Pisidian Antioch, it's about 100 miles north that they're going to trek, and it's through really big, jagged mountains with extremely difficult roads. So that's where they're headed, and it could be that John Mark was just like, it's too much, it's too much. Another thing that people think is that later on, when Paul is writing to the church in Galatia, to churches in Galatia, he tells them, you know it was because I was sick when I first came and preached the gospel to you. And then he goes on with great thanks. And he says, and you received me and you welcomed me and you did not hold it against me that I was ill. So he is thanking them for their generous hearts when he arrived to the churches in the Galatian area, even though he was sick. So a lot of scholars believe that when he was in the sea, in the Mediterranean Sea, from Cyprus sailing to Persia, there is, that was a region in the world that, that had a lot of coastal malaria. And so a lot of scholars think that Paul may have contracted malaria and was sick when he was on the coast in the warm coastal air and he had to go north through the mountains to get drier air, cooler air to help him heal. Now, 
Also, there's some people who say, yeah, but if he was sick before he made the trek through the mountains, could he ever have made the trek through the mountains? Because it's 100 miles through mountains and on horrible roads. So, you know, when did Paul get sick? I don't know. (laughs) Did he get sick on the journey? Did he get sick on the coast? Did he take some time on the journey to rest and get healed before he made his way north? I'm not sure. And did John Mark get scared of the whole situation and decide to turn around because of the mountains and the altitude and the horrible roads and the danger and the illness? Was that all just completely overwhelming? Possibly, and maybe that's why he left. We just don't know. But we know it caused wounds, and we know that those wounds were later healed. All right, so anyway, verse 14. I'm in chapter 13, verse 14. From Persia, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and they sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them and said, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and he said, Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness. And he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All of this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled for 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, as he's promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you suppose I am? I am not the one you're looking for. But there is one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and they laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. Now, then he goes into some quotations from some psalms. And then he tells them this beautiful sentence after he quotes some psalms. He says, therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Then he gives them a few more quotations from the Old Testament. Now, one thing about synagogue is they read the scriptures. I mean, the scriptures in synagogue were were the main 
thing. The main event was the reading of the scripture and preaching was secondary to the reading of the scripture. Jews knew their text. They knew the Bible, the Old Testament. So when Paul or any other preacher is going through and you see quotations in the New Testament, when we see quotations from the Old Testament, all of the people who would have been hearing that in their Jewish culture, they all knew it. They memorized the text. They had it in them. And they knew that the person who was speaking is not just quoting that one verse, but they are really alluding to that entire section of scripture. And they knew the whole section. So in his sermons, in synagogue, in his sermons, we see Paul weaving in a ton of Old Testament scripture into his sermons because the people knew the Old Testament. You see the same thing when you read all of the New Testament, Peter and John, Matthew, Luke, all of the New Testament writers weave scripture of the Old Testament into what they are teaching. What's interesting here is the first sermon preached on Pentecost was by Peter, and he also goes all the way back when he preaches the gospel about how God sent Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. And he tells the the Jewish leaders, the chief priests and Sadducees, he says, you handed him over to death, but God raised him from the dead. And Peter goes all the way back in his sermon, he goes all the way back to Abraham to build the story of God, the story of Israel, and how Jesus is the fulfillment of the story of the Old Testament, the promises that God gave to Abraham. Jesus is the fulfillment of every single promise of the Old Testament. Peter does that on Pentecost. Stephen, when he stoned in Acts chapter 7, which Paul, we know, was there at the stoning. He heard the whole sermon being preached to the Sanhedrin when Stephen was preaching. Paul was there. He went by his Jewish name, then Saul. He's there hearing the whole sermon, and Stephen does the same thing. He goes all the way back to Abraham and the promise that God gave Abraham and building the nation of Israel and how Jesus is the fulfillment of every promise that God made in the Old Testament. And now... Paul in this sermon, which is the first full sermon and actually the longest sermon that we ever see Paul preach that's written down for us, he does the exact same thing. So they're preaching to a Jewish audience primarily and they start way back with Abraham to show the people Jesus is the Messiah written about through the entire Old Testament. And this is so important for you and I to understand too that Jesus is the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. Today, one of the traps that Christians fall into so easily is thinking that we are only New Testament people and the Old Testament does not apply to us and that it could not be further from the truth. The Old Testament is the Bible that Jesus read and what Jesus had memorized and he is the complete fulfillment of the Old Testament. So never let yourself fall into the trap that thinks that the Old Testament has nothing to do with you. It absolutely does. It is the story of God choosing his people and fulfilling every single promise in Jesus. It is the story of God and it is the story of the world and it is the story of redemption. And so it's extremely pertinent for all of us. And that is where the apostles always started with their sermons when they were preaching to a Jewish audience to show Jesus is the fulfillment of all of this. We are not ditching the Old Testament law. Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament law. So 
Paul preaches this incredible sermon. And in verse 42, he wraps it up. And so I'm in chapter 13, verse 42. It says, As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying, and they heaped abuse on him. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first, but since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we will now turn to the Gentiles, for this is what the Lord has commanded us. And then he quotes from Isaiah 49, verse 6. He says, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad, and they honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread throughout the whole region. But the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went on to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Much of what I'm reading indicates scholars believe that when it says in verse 50 that the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city and the Jewish leaders, it says they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and then expelled them from their region seems very likely and very possible that the persecution that was stirred up against Paul and Barnabas could have been beating, could have been whipping, flogging. And one thing that I read that I thought was so interesting was that Paul easily could have let them know that he is a Roman citizen and then they wouldn't have been able to beat him or stone him or abuse him without a fair trial. But Barnabas was not a Roman citizen. And so Paul would not have left Barnabas out to hang. Like, he wouldn't have been like, well, I am a Roman citizen, so you can't hurt me. And then they could have hurt Barnabas. And Paul would never have left him like that. He would have never let him suffer alone. Because Paul did not tell them at this point that he's a Roman citizen. And so he probably was beaten at this point with Barnabas. And as they healed... They left and they shook their feet, the dust off their feet, as a warning to the city and went to Iconium, which is what Jesus told when he sent out the disciples. And he said that if a city will not welcome you, to shake the dust off your feet and move on. And so that is what they did. They moved on. And when they moved on, they did not move on in bitterness and scorn and despair and sadness and destitute they moved on with joy and they were filled with the holy spirit and think about how they moved on now because in every place that they went people came to christ in large numbers and then they and then the believers who just came to christ would send them off again 
to the next place, the next city where they're going to go. As Paul and Barnabas left each new place, they knew they were leaving with this people group behind them, this church, this body of Christ, who was sending them and praying for them. So as they went, it has like a snowball effect of prayer. The further they go, the more churches they plant, the more people they have praying for them behind them. So the power of prayer is building up behind them as they go, sending them on in power, sending them on in power to every single place that they go. And they continue on this journey. We're not going to continue tonight on this journey. We're going to do the second half of their first missionary journey in the next episode. But it's just so exciting to me to think about as they leave this city and as they trek over the mountains, they start they start on another long journey through the mountains. There are people in Poseidon Antioch who are going to be praying for them. And they are building a church. They are worshiping Jesus together. They're lifting up Paul and Barnabas in prayer. And they themselves are also going to be sending out the gospel to other regions smaller. And we don't have record of that, but we know that they did because the church was on fire. The early church was like fire spreading. And so they would have been also telling new people of the gospel. And then those people start to pray. And the power of prayer that is fueling the mission of Paul and Barnabas is just so exciting. And we can see it in the pages of scripture. I want to jump over to Acts chapter 1 verse 8 for uh, a closing tonight. Because at the very beginning of the book of Acts before Jesus ascends, like right before he ascends into heaven, he is talking to his apostles and he tells them in verse 4, chapter 1, verse 4, he says, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father has promised, which you have heard me speak about, which of course is the Holy Spirit. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then they gathered around him and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? I just, I love that question about them. This is after Jesus has died for our sins and resurrected. He has conquered sin, death, and the devil. And they still think that he is coming to overthrow the Roman government and to free Israel as its own nation and to overthrow the Roman oppression. And and I just love their... I love their questions. I love that they still don't quite get it. But that's because the Holy Spirit has not come on them. And Jesus already told them that when the Holy Spirit comes, he will lead you into all truth. He will teach you everything. He will help you understand everything I've told you. And the Holy Spirit hasn't come yet, so they're still confused. In verse 7, it says, He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So what we have seen up until really this point uh, is that we have seen the apostles be the witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. And a little bit beyond that, because it says when Stephen was persecuted, we already talked about this, but in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen was persecuted, it says that the Christians out of Jerusalem fled and went to lots of different regions. So they have started to go, 
But this first missionary of Paul and Barnabas is the first time where that we have record of where people intentionally now are beginning this journey of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, which in their mindset would have been to the remotest parts of the Roman Empire, and not just the remotest parts, but also to the biggest cities in the Roman Empire, to the most Roman, the most Greek, the most idolatrous cities in the Roman Empire, they knew that that is where they were heading. And this in Acts chapter 13 is where we really start to see this start to go. It starts to go. And as they travel, they get more and more powerful. Why? Because more and more people are being filled with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, you will be filled with power by the Holy Spirit. So as the church grows, The number of people filled with the Holy Spirit is growing exponentially and the power behind the gospel is is just growing like a snowball and is rolling faster and faster and faster and more and more powerfully. And again, we have a messed up understanding of what power is. So as I say the word power, we tend to think about power in in a way that means money and prestige and rank. And in the Bible, <laughs> power is not that. In 2 Timothy 1.7, Paul is writing about this power to Timothy. And he says that the spirit that God gave us does not make us timid, but it, is, it gives us power, love, and self-control. So the, the way that the power expresses itself throughout the kingdom of God is in love and self-control and humility in laying down your life for others. That is the power of the gospel. It is upside down. That is why it can spread in this empire of the Roman Empire. It spreads because it's different. It you People could see it. They could see that this is different. It doesn't mean they necessarily admired it until they got to know Jesus. Then they admired it, but they thought the Christians were crazy because they were living so other than, they were living so upside down. As the gospel got going, the power kept expanding exponentially. And the power of prayer that was behind Paul and Barnabas just grew and grew and grew. And we can see that as we go along in the miracles that are going to take place in the ministry. And it's so exciting. I want to share with you as I close just something that I found in, I'm reading a book by Chuck Swindoll. It's his book on the Apostle Paul, a man of grace and grit. And he is actually quoting another scholar who wrote the Moody Atlas of Bible Lands, (laughs) Barry Beitzel. And he wrote this about the Apostle Paul's travels that I would like to share with you. The distances traveled by the Apostle Paul are nothing short of staggering. In point of fact, the New Testament registers the equivalent of about 13,400 airline miles that the great Apostle journeyed. And if one takes into account the circuitous roads he necessarily had to employ at times, the total distance traveled would exceed that figure by a sizable margin. Moreover, it appears that the New Testament does not document all of Paul's excursions. 
For example, there seems to have been an unchronicled visit to Corinth, and he refers to shipwrecks that we have no record of. And there was his desire to tour Spain, although it is still debated whether or not he ever succeeded in that mission. Considering the means of transportation available in the Roman world, the average distance traveled in a day, the primitive paths, and the rugged, sometimes mountainous terrain over which he had to venture, the sheer expenditure of the apostle's physical energy becomes unfathomable for us. Many of those miles carried Paul through unsafe and hostile environments, largely controlled by bandits who eagerly awaited a prey. Accordingly, Paul's commitment to the Lord entailed a spiritual vitality that was inextricably joined to a superlative level of physical stamina and fearless courage. I find the man fascinating, fascinating. His love for Jesus, so beautiful, so passionate, that he went through thousands and thousands of miles on foot, by sea, shipwrecks, illnesses, bandits, beatings, stonings. He went through physical trauma and suffering that I cannot fathom. I cannot understand it. I cannot wrap my mind around it. Even something as simple to him as trekking through the mountains on a hundred mile journey by foot up the mountains, sleeping outside, sleeping probably without blankets, on roads that were more like a hiking trail, what we would call a hiking trail, and he would hike them for hundreds of miles to the next town, knowing that in that town, persecutions awaited him. And he did this endlessly and passionately and joyfully, joyfully. He did it with joy. It's staggering to me. It's fascinating to me. And it just draws me closer to Jesus because it's all for Jesus that the Apostle Paul did this. His love for Jesus was so vibrant and core and central to who he was. It was everything to him. And in the middle of all of that, he still was able to write in his letter to the Philippians, which I had said at the very beginning of this journey, I said that it was going to be one of our core scriptures that we focus on. He still was able to say, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know him in his suffering, to be like him in his death. Paul wanted to know Jesus. And I would say, well, who could possibly have known Jesus any more than Paul? But as he journeyed and as he suffered for Christ, he got closer and closer and closer and closer, more deeply into an intimate knowledge of who Jesus is. The more he journeyed, the more he got to know Jesus. And that is what I want. I want to journey through this life with one ambition, to know Jesus to know Jesus, to know Jesus, and to see every single day and every single trial and every single joy as another opportunity to know Jesus more. 
that is what the Apostle Paul did. That is how I want to live my life, to know Jesus more. Amen and amen. Thank you for joining me in the next podcast. We will be looking at the second half of Paul's first missionary journey. So I look forward to seeing you again, and I hope you just keep on studying. Keep on studying. Have a good night. Bye.